This is Stories of Win, where we showcase amazing women in neuroscience. We chat with them about their research, their unique journeys through academia, and what drives their passion for studying the brain. Here is one of their stories. This is Nancy with Stories of Win, and I am here with Dr. Jessica Verpute, who is an assistant professor in the psychology department at in Arizona State University. Thank you so much for letting me interview you today. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so we like starting by asking you, how did you become interested in the brain? How did that happen for you? Mm -hmm. So do you want me to start back like through my whole trajectory or just the brain itself as a question? You could start with like what got you into science and then how that led you into the brain. And that's fine. Yeah. Okay. So um, I, when I was an undergraduate student, I was interested in biology in general. It's a very general aspect. And I started getting involved in um, many different things on campus, which I always recommend to my students to try different things. And I started working in an entomology lab studying tobacco hornworms and looking at pest-resistant crop control. Wait, studying worms? Yeah, tobacco hornworms. Tobacco worms, wow. Mm -hmm. And they are um, very, uh, they're, they're a big pest for agriculture. And we can create plants that will produce things that will basically cause them to not want to eat, eat the plant. So they'll produce... Um, these chemicals, and then the, the tobacco hornworm doesn't want to eat them. So it's a natural type of uh, GMO. So it's a genetically wow. modified organism um, in these plant species, and it will cause the worms not to eat them. So we were studying the gut um, microbiome of these tobacco hornworms to see how we could make a, a plant like this. And that just was fascinating to me that we could use some, we could do something like this and change the genetic makeup of these plants and just call, create these very natural um, pesticides in a way. And I really wanted to look more at the animal structures themselves, right? So we were studying this in an agriculture aspect, but I was really interested in how, well, what, what are these animals actually doing? How can I get involved in studying um, animal behavior? And I was, because I was really interested in like, why would the, you know, how do you actually study the organism that's eating the plant, right? That was what I was really more interested in. Um, and so I, I worked in a couple different labs. I worked with a deer research center where we were looking at reproductive hormones in white tail. In deer? You said deer? Okay. Mm -hmm. Wow. You've worked with so many animals, worms, deers. Yeah. And so we were studying, um, you know, could we give them some type of birth control, per se, and reduce the population because in Pennsylvania, there's a high incidence of too many deer and not enough foliage. And they're, um, in a way, kind of destroying the ecosystem because there's no natural predator. So this is an ongoing problem. And we, we did pilot out a few different types of drugs that some were used actually throughout Pennsylvania and New Jersey. And that was really fascinating, right? We got to raise these little deer. We got to look at their behavior. That was really interesting for me. And then for a actual project as an undergraduate student, I didn't do a, an honors thesis, but I did do a full project. Um, I was working with Paul Bartel and we were looking at migratory species of a different animal. So this was the English white-throated sparrow. And we wanted to know, is there some kind of hormone that initiates the start of migration or maybe correlates in some way? And so we were studying adiponectin, which is a um, 
brief terms, like a fat modulating hormone. And we saw that we can we can see these spikes in when um, adiponectin is released to start basically allowing the animal to use their fat as a fuel resource. And that might give them enough fuel to then want to spur migration because animals can't migrate, especially birds over thousands of miles without having some source of fuel. And they won't stop to eat typically They'll fly for these thousands of miles without stopping. And when they get to their, where they're going, they do rely on that food source to be there so they can replenish. Um, but you'll see that their fat levels actually drop quite dramatically during that time. Wow. And then from there, so you, you know, you're as an undergrad, you did all these research on animal behavior and how did you end up studying the brain? Yeah. I guess like I could see, I could see you're interested in behavior and there's hormones there, like hormones and be very early on behavior. Then like you encounter some like hormone interactions with behavior. Mm -hmm. How do you end up going up in the head? Yes, that's a great question. <laughs> um, so for my graduate work, I ended up at Rutgers University in their endocrinology and animal biosciences program. So it was really kind of a mix of both these great, great research interests. And in studying endocrinology, we were looking at actually now rats and binge eating behavior um, in these rat models. So we give them sucrose, we allow them to eat a bunch, and we can see that over time they'll actually stop intaking their other food and they'll prefer this very short window of um, sweetened fat, which is just Crisco mixed with some sugar. <laughs> and then we started looking to see, well, what brain mechanism might be regulating this. So we were focused on the hypothalamus, um, <clears throat> looking at leptin, looking at corticosterone and stress levels, as stress is a large component of binge eating disorder in humans. And this was really um, fascinating for us, but I was really interested in the neurochemicals that might be modulating these behaviors. So I became very interested in norepinephrine itself. And norepinephrine is a um, neuromodulator that really controls most of how we behave. So it can be initiated, for instance, in the flight or fight response, in food intake, in a, a lot of different behaviors. And it washes over almost the entire brain. It's released almost everywhere. So it's, it's really fascinating. We, we study it primarily coming from the locus ceruleus. Um, we were looking at its impacts on the hypothalamus. And I was searching for a mouse or any model. It could have been a rat model too, that we could study this changes in um, norepinephrine as a catecholamine. So one of uh, maybe some model that has these changes in norepinephrine. At the time, um, Jackson Labs didn't have anything like that. Jackson Labs is typically this, um, uh, for listeners, this lab that we can purchase animals from that might have specific changes. This is an animal farm. Yes. <laughs> but, you know, you can buy animals, research animals, research animal farm, basically. So they didn't have anything like this at the time, but there was a one of our collaborators, um, Dr. Chico Bloom, at he was at uh, UMDMJ, the, the medical school part of Rutgers now. And he has this model that um, is the Ingrel 2 knockout model in mice. And they had changes in the catecholamines, different levels throughout different parts of their brain, which was really interesting and low levels of um, norepinephrine. So we had seen that this. So wait, so they had a mutation on the gene, on the enzyme that makes catecholamines and then they had low so levels? So it's not specific that? to that. No, and GRL2 is a um, neural development 
um, gene. Oh, right. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. It's a very, it's a mutant that affects a lot of things. But yeah. among those things, it affected catecholamine levels. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, and so they have tons of different changes to both their um, neural structure, their behavior, and, and we'll, I'll talk about some of those, but it's a, it's a whole body knockout. So they're, it's a quite mm-hmm. drastic um, change. And what we found interesting is if you sample different parts of the brain, you found that there's atypical levels of these catecholamines that we think to be, at least at the time, <laughs> need to be a specific amount for there to have typical behavior. And what wasn't known at the time was that these animals have <clears throat> severe deficits in both social behavior, um, they have high anxiety. Uh, they they just don't they don't seem to thrive very well, and we weren't sure if it was a relationship of the catecholamine levels of the brain or something more severe. But our job was to see if we could rescue some of these effects by using one of our other models for food intake. So one theory that we had oh. was that we could increase levels of catecholamine. Um, which we had seen in the rats, we could increase norepinephrine with our um, binge intake study. Oh, that's the connection. Yeah, because all this time I was like, okay, but you know, she hasn't, because you, you, you started by talking, you were studying feeding behavior in rats <laughs> and like, you know, studying lepting and whatnot. And then catecholamines came into play. And then there's this mouse model. I'm just kind of repeating yeah. and trying to like yeah. understand it myself. There's this mouse model that had a bunch of problems and decrease catecholamine. And then the reason why you came to catecholamines was because you noticed that binge eating increases it? Is that, where does it get increased? Does it get increased in the hypothalamus? We were mostly studying the hypothalamus, um, but at okay. some points we we looked at many different parts of the brain. Okay, mm-hmm. all right. So then with this model that had a lot of problems and decrease in catecholamines, then you, I'm assuming that's where you're going. Like, did you ask the question, does binge eating? So we, we uh, want to focus on binge eating because it's a neural developmental model. So I thought, well, what can we feed the animals that is a clinically relevant treatment um, for maybe something in the neural developmental field? And I found some literature on the ketogenic diet, which is really interesting. This is this diet that's high in, um, very high in fat and protein, and it has as a um, classically known as the Atkins diet, it's no carbohydrates or very little. And children with epilepsy, severe epilepsy can be put on this diet. And sometimes it does help quite a lot. And it will reduce the amount of seizures that the children have over the course of their um, early, early life. It doesn't work forever, but in clinical situations, it can help a lot. And in children with autism, there's some clinical trials, very few, showing that also behavior changes as a result of this diet. So then the question is, what is this diet doing to neural mechanisms and could it help our animal model? So taking a little bit from all our past studies, I put these animals on this diet when they're just weaned. So they're starting to eat solid food. And it was a very mushy like paste diet that we had to make. So they're in a ketogenic diet. Mm -hmm. And so they they start entering into a ketogenic state where the brain is using ketones, ketone bodies, instead of using glucose, which is their primary fuel. And in putting the animals in the state, we we saw that their behavior actually improved. They actually got a little bit bigger. They were able to thrive better. They were able to do better as adults. And then we decided to look at different regions of the brain that might be activated and involved in this um, improved social behavior that we saw. 
Oh, so when you said their behavior got better, was it specifically like social preference or something like that? Yeah, we were studying the three chamber using the three chamber model. So animals have the opportunity to either be with an object on one side of the chamber or a novel mouse. We also did this with um, two different novel partners. So <clears throat> more of a novel preference test with, with both social partners. And we could look then at different regions of the brain using a immediate early gene marker, which is CFOS. So anytime there's some influx of calcium, eventually you see this increased level of the protein CFOS. And what we saw is that there was improvements in regions of the brain that we associate with social behavior. Okay. Did the behavior also change? Mm-hmm. All right, so both changes in behavior and also changes in acti well in in activity, an indirect measure of activity, mm -hmm. uh, but but parts of the brain that you would expect to be changing with that behavior. Yes, just from the diet and just from the diet. Wow, that's awesome. That's incredible. And then what can what can you conclude? And I'm guessing this was like your post your do doctoral work, right? Yes, this was my doctoral work. So another component of the work um, was to look at can we change actually these catecholamine levels? And that can be, that's a harder question. We're using um, high performance liquid chromatography, which is again, more of an indirect measure, right? We can take samples of the brain, samples of the blood and look for um, levels of serotonin, norepinephrine, dopamine, all the major biogenetic means. And we didn't see actually much changes in the brain regions that we would expect, like the hypothalamus, but we saw increased levels um, of some biogenetic means in the cerebellum. And what was really interesting about this model, and I'm, I'm using this as our transition to the next phase of my research, is that these animals also have an atypical cerebellum. They have a very small cerebellum. It's typically either atrophied or it's just, it's just severely reduced. And we don't know too much about its activity patterns, how they change in the model with the diet. We didn't study that. That'd be something interesting to do. Um, but what's really interesting is that a lot of these genetic models that focus on neural development really affect the cerebellum quite a bit. So other brain regions may or may not be altered, but the cerebellum almost always is. And, and so that really spurred my interest as to why, what does the cerebellum have to do with any of this? And at the time, and if you look back at some literature, the answer would be it's not involved, right? But yet we see all these big changes. Why, um, why were they concluding that it was not involved? Was it that they were ignoring the cerebellum altogether or that they were lesioning it and showing that there's no change, like why? No, so um, especially if you're studying food intake and you're study and we, we expect everything to be in the forebrain, the cerebellum is just typically tossed out. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. you cut it out when you're <laughs> when you're yeah. dissecting your brain. Exactly. So there's perhaps this whole other body of research that we could look into for the cerebellum when it comes to things like food intake and neural development that has not previously been looked at. And taking that question, I actually ran into my postdoc, um, who was going to be my future postdoc supervisor at Princeton, Sam Wong. And I asked him, you know, he was giving a talk on the cerebellum. And I was like, you know, I have this animal model. We find these weird alterations um, with the cerebellar um, growth maturation. And we started chatting and it turned out that he was really interested in this question as well in relation to autism. And he had found that there, there were many, many models that we considered to have these autistic-like phenotype, which technically the Ingrail 2 would fall into that category because they also have these deficits in social behavior and other um, behavioral deficits. And then the question is why? 
right? What is this? Does the cerebellum have some kind of influence in neural development? Is maybe there's these long distance circuits that could be involved? Like, what is the role there? And so that's what I then spent almost six years studying as my for my postdoc because mm. I'm really interested in this question of why do we see changes in this brain region that we don't consider to be involved in anything but previously thought to be motor behavior. Right. So I think that, yeah. So I'm, I was thinking back to what you said of like, you know, if you look at the literature, nobody mentioned the cerebellum for feeding or for neurodevelopment at all. And it's because, you know, we all learn cerebellum is for movement. And it, it it's sort of like as if it was unidimensional. And it's not until now that people are starting to study the cerebellum in other capacities. Um, so um, it's not that the stu any study was saying that the cerebellum did not have a role. It's that they were not even checking. <laughs> they yeah. were not yeah. asking or, the or questions. As far as... Um, trying to do studies where they're live recording in different forebrain regions and actually removing the cerebellum because it's in the way. <laughs> mm -hmm. Just not being able to have the technical ability to study the brain as a whole. I think that's really a big challenge too in neuroscience, um, trying to understand how these long distance circuits are influencing each other. And when you start thinking about how you would do that, what would the best experiment would be it becomes challenging. We just don't have the imaging methods. We don't have the tools. Maybe you don't have the tools in particular at your institute because it's just too expensive um, to put together. So there's there's all these challenges in neuroscience. And I think that there are there's a huge it's it's becoming a booming industry right now. Can we can we make tools to study whole brain circuits? And that is where I think we're going to start seeing um, these long distance circuits between the cerebellum and the rest of the brain. Wow, that's pretty exciting, like, uh, to think about, like, being able to image the whole brain, or like, things that span the whole brain, including the cerebellum, yes. <laughs> excluding yeah. it, not just the forebrain. Exactly. And we, we tried to do this a little bit during my postdoc. Um, so there was a graduate student who um, went into, he was an MD-PhD student, Tom Pisano. I have to give him credit for this, because he worked so hard to um, make sure that we had our light sheet. Um, working with our tissue cleared samples so we can we can clear brain samples, whole brain samples. We can take everything out of the brain. They look almost transparent and we can stain for proteins of interest or anything of interest that you're looking for, maybe a virus that you've injected to, to do as a trace for virus, um, anything that you, you want to look for. And we don't have to set, cut the brain into little bits to image them on a microscope. So we can image the entire brain at once. And this becomes really powerful because there's really small components of the brain that once you cut, unless you're using EM or electron microscopy and you can put it back together and that's extremely time consuming, and very sensitive and it requires somebody who is highly trained to do, to look at these very, very small molecules. Um, it's really hard to see long distance circuits. Right, exactly, to know that they exist, right? To know anatomically that there is one. Um, so let's dive into your postdoctoral research because it sounds like uh, long range connections from the cerebellum to somewhere else are a key part of it. Yes. So one of the big questions we had was during neural development, how could the cerebellum be influencing the rest of the brain? And to do this, we were using a another big tool in neuroscience, DREADS, so these designer receptors exclusively activated by designer drugs, nice long name, um, in 
um, basically what they do is re replace acetylcholine receptors on the cell surface, and we can manipulate cell activity that way. So we can either turn up the cell so it's firing more or turn down, firing less, silencing in some cases. And this was a really powerful tool because if we want to study these um, big circuits and behavior, we need a, a way to manipulate the, the cells themselves. And so we were studying molecular layer interneurons in the cerebellar cortex, and we were making this a uh, quite a large project by studying each component of the cerebellum, each lobule of the cerebellum. So there's different regions, at least it's classically thought to be different regions, mm -hmm. right? We don't, we don't know too much about how their function could differentiate. That was part of the project. So we were studying to see if different regions of the cerebellum could influence um, behavior in a very specific way. Were you measuring specific types of behaviors or? Yeah, what so we, we had the Olympics of behavior, as we call it. Oh, wow. Many behaviors. <laughs> <laughs> yes, in our paper. So we studied everything from social behavior, open fields for anxiety and stress. And we looked at how animals can, can move their gait on a balance beam. And we looked at why maze behavior, which is this complex cognitive task, which we end up using so the most. This, the animal has to make a choice to get a reward, right, left or right? Yeah, so they're, they they don't receive reward in this case. They're just the reward is to get out of the water and to to jump onto a platform. Oh, the water maze. I I understood the Y maze. Yeah, okay, water, that makes sense. Water Y maze. Yeah. Okay. And so putting all these behaviors together, all these different tasks. You know, this is classically what people do, especially when they're going to define a model autism. It has to check certain certain boxes that we consider to be in a quote unquote autism model. And so by going through these different tasks, you can start to examine that. And what we, mm -hmm. go ahead. But were these, well, were these wild types that you were, in which you were manipulating um, cerebellar uh, circuits or were, were these mutants? No, these were just manipulated using the dread virus. So none okay. of, they were not genetically modified at all. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And so the thought being that the cerebellum might have these long distance circuits, but it might not necessarily, you don't might necessarily need to study it using a genetic model because we're not interested in saying this gene is linked to this right now. Right. That might, it's about uh, basic that might be the function. Case, but yes, but, we want to know if the region has a specific function. So were you were you silencing subregions of the cerebellum? Yes. Okay. Yes, yeah, subregions of the cerebellum, which in our case were um it's divided up into lobules classically. So we can think of, um, just to group them for this conversation, hemispheric regions, which are more on the side of the cerebellum, or vermis, which is more in the middle of the cerebellum, right? Even those yeah. can be divided up into different regions. Um, so, but what we found was that these big subregions, um, if you just look at vermis and hemisphere, they actually do end up influencing different behaviors. So we found that these hemispheric regions, the side regions are more influential on social behavior, where perhaps more medial regions, um, the vermal regions were more influential for cognitive-like behaviors. And we study this both in adults and in younger animals through this um, chronic manipulation of these circuits. Did the mice also had some movement deficits because the cerebellum has a role in the movement. So it right. was both like a behavioral deficit and also some movement cha movement aspect change. Right. So we didn't see any ataxia in these animals unless it was related yeah. to um, a surgery. So some of the lobules are quite deep. 
And when we went a little bit deeper towards more muscle rel- areas and started to really influence animal movement, that's when we started to see gait deficits. And that's really just limitation of the technique. Mm, wow. So then even though everybody's like, oh, yeah, the cerebellum is super involved in movement, when you silence these subregions, it's not sufficient to, to get a change. Yeah. So there's specific subregions that are um, more involved in what we call non-motor behaviors. Um, there's certainly regions of the cerebellum that we know um, are involved in motor behaviors, and we avoided those for this. I see. Okay. Mm-hmm. And as a extension of this work, we wanted to see, well, if they are involved in non-motor behaviors, they must, maybe they have a projection. Maybe it's not, we're not claiming that it's localized to the cerebellum. So maybe there's mm-hmm. a connection to um, these more classically thought of regions for cognition. And so we were using viruses that when you inject it into a different part of the cerebellum, it will actually cross multiple synapses in the brain, which is quite challenging for most viral methods. And using these tools, we could find that, yes, we see cells labeled in distal regions of the forebrain. So we see stuff in the medial prefrontal cortex, anterior singular cortex, um, orbital frontal cortex, these regions that are thought to be highly implicated in social behavior um, after injection into the cerebellum. So that meant that the cerebellum was sending projections to those regions. Yes. And they could be receiving them back as well. We know the circuit is bidirectional. Okay. Yes. And we don't know, for instance, who is influence who and when. So that's all questions to be <laughs> answered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so your postdoc project uh, characterized behaviorally what is the role of each of these subregions of the cerebellum and also the, ana- the anatomical connections to yes. forebrain and yes. and where how does that how did that launch your your career like your research program like um how did your past research um influence what you're currently doing now what comes next basically or what's happening now <laughs> yes so a lot of this research was focused on the cortex of the cerebellum so everything that's more towards the surface of the brain um, or, or larger cells that we had animal models for that we can manipulate in the cortex. Um, but then the question when is, you say the cortex, you mean the cortex of the cerebellum? cerebellum. Though. Yes, yes okay. the cortex <laughs> of the cerebellum. Yes, <laughs> and thank you for correcting me on that. And we we know that if we influence those cells, we see that there's changes in behavior. We even characterized um, using I was saying these these whole brain kind of techniques that I discussed earlier. We characterized how these projections, um, actually the subregions of the cerebellum project to subregions of the forebrain. We characterize that. We characterize even the behavior for that water y maze task, um, subregions that are activated during that task. So we have a really good idea of where these subregions are projecting to and how they're influencing different parts of the brain. And the question is, though, everything gets projected out of the cerebellum through the deep cerebellum nuclei. So there's actually like this gatekeeper which is really interesting. (laughs) And because there's very strict developmental rules for this gatekeeper. So everything projects from the cerebellar cortex through the deep cerebellar nuclei, probably to the thalamus, the ventral tegmental area, there's a couple different regions there, to the forebrain or the rest of the brain. That's what we think. There could be other regions, the other trajectories involved. This is what we found so far. And the deep cerebellar nuclei in really early life they, they have a plasticity period. So plasticity is when the brain can change 
based on experiences, based on learning in a very simple, in a very quick way, I should say, easy way. So this happens early in life. So this is how children learn to walk and speak and everything else, but they can close. So we can, we can still learn, but it might be more challenging. And one of the best examples of this is learning a language and whether a child ends up having the accent or not. That's something that will close very early in life. And if you learn a language earlier, later as an adult, you're not going to have the same accent as a foreign speaker or as someone who learned it as a very before that critical period closed. So this is what these plasticity periods are. Um, but they form in different parts of the brain, and we don't know their function in every part of the brain. But we know the deep cerebellum nuclei has these plasticity periods that close. And they might be developmentally regulating something about these trajectory patterns or behavior. So right now, my um, graduate student, Tristan Lyle, he is studying the deep cerebellum nuclei and its uh, relationship to plasticity. So he's looking at using our DREAD model to manipulate different parts of the deep cerebellum nuclei and looking to see how behavior changes. And right now, he's studying cognitive behavior and we do it completely different task now. <laughs> it's a and and is he doing it in the developmental window? Like so to yes, see if he can identify life. okay. Mm-hmm. Before the critical window closes then? Yes. Or ends? Okay. Yes. yes. So in a way we're trying to see we're we're gonna try to open and close them at different periods, manipulate them, look to see how they're influencing um, neural structure and behavior. So neural structure in, in other parts of the brain, actually. So would opening them mean activating them? Like if you activate them with dreads, that would be equivalent to opening the window. Is that what you mean? We could use it that way. So what we found so far is by increasing the amount of neural activity in areas with, with they're called perineural nets that, that encase okay. these neurons that control plasticity, we can, we can reduce that those nets and and in a way maybe reopen that plasticity. Ah, okay. By activating you, the mm-hmm. there's a change in the plasticity. Yes. Wow. We can also target the nets using different chemicals where we can degrade them as well. What are the nets made of? I've heard of this, but you know, plasticity, this type of plasticity is definitely not at all part of my expertise. So I remember like one paper about this peri. Yeah. What is, I can't even remember the, perineural nets, what are they? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they're extracellular matrices that are made up of actually a bunch of different components, chondroitin is one of them, and they will basically stop physically spines from being able to, spines are components of your neurons Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. are really important for cell communication. So they can prevent them from changing. They can prevent them from forming. They have um, actually a bunch of different properties. But how? By releasing some proteins or chemicals? Like how do they stop the spine development? How do they control the spine it's, development? It's for, for one main way is physically. Oh, okay. Physically. Get on the way. They get on yes. the way. <laughs> so um, many electrophysiologists will consider these parallel neural nets like a goopy type structure that you have trouble recording because your electrode gets stuck in the perineural nets. Ah, so they grow once the critical window is closing. They grow, and that's what closes the critical window of plasticity because you can no longer have easier changes. Yes. It's harder to have physical changes in the spines because yes. these nets are there. Yes. Ah, okay. 
I understand now. Yeah, and it Thank has you. something to do with neural activity. So we know that, for instance, Purkinje cells, they're an inhibitory neuron, right? So if excitation reduces the, the, the net structures, then inhibition would do the opposite, right? Then maybe you would see more. And we don't know this to be an absolute fact, but we do know that in early development, these Purkinje cells are growing in the cerebellar cortex. They become more inhibitory onto the deep cerebellar nuclei, and then we see the growth of these nets. So mm -hmm. there are um, a couple papers trying to explain the mechanism that might be there behind that. And it might be all neural signaling, or it could be something else, right? We don't know. Hmm. Yeah, I... I've... I off I had not thought about perineural neural nets in years. I have yeah. to say, <laughs> yeah, they're it's quite like, compl oh, complicated. Right. They exist. I forgot about them. Wow, <laughs> uh, they're very interesting, and I guess not much is known um, except that they have a role in gating plasticity in neural developmental disorders in both animal models and in some uh, post-mortem um, human brain samples, we, we sometimes see differences. And so that's the question, right? What, why are there differences? Do they mean anything? <laughs> we think that they do, <laughs> but that is something that we are examining right now. Yeah. So just to close like um, our discussion about your current research, what is the goal of your, of your lab research-wise? What do you hope to, you know, in 10 years you've accomplished X, Y, and Z? <laughs> well, I would hope to be able to describe what these parallel net function is in early life. That's one of our big goals. Um, our overarching goal is really to understand cerebellar function in, in developing animals, right? So we're studying this almost an adolescent period because these animals were weaned already. And with newer techniques and newer abilities, maybe we can even go younger and study um, at, at younger ages, what the cerebellum is doing to influence um, neural development. Awesome. All right. So now, you know, we've we've heard about all the all your scientific trajectory and it sounded super smooth as if like, you know, like just <laughs> one thing led to the next and you were succeeding and doing fantastic and everything. But, you know, we know reality is not like that. So can you share with us a challenge that you've had in this trajectory? Yes, absolutely. Um, we were going th through the research so smoothly, <laughs> but let's let's talk about yeah the the reality of it all. So I I want to if you don't mind I want to mention a couple things. A hundred percent. Go ahead. Multiple challenges. <laughs> so the more the merrier. I, I don't want to leave this conversation without saying that financially it's really difficult to get to this stage, right? For most people, um, I have a lot of student loans, and that's always been a struggle. And eventually it gets better, right? <laughs> you end up with your career job and things do get better. But financially, um, you know, graduate school, postdoc, they're not high paying positions. So it's it financially can be very difficult to get through. And of course, time management. So if you're trying to work multiple jobs or maybe you have to teach during this, this time period, um, if you're not fully funded as a graduate student, um, that can be really challenging to manage other people, your teaching, your research, everything else, and it just becomes more, right? As a as a full um, assistant professor, then you end oh, up yes. <laughs> juggling many, many different things. Um, but one specific challenge that I wanted to hit on, because I, I think that this story, everybody's going to have now a climate change story, but um, I was a graduate student when Hurricane Sandy hit New Jersey. And for some places, maybe they had backup power 
but New York and New Jersey, they were pretty devastated because we're not used to getting hit by these storms. Um, the infrastructure was not there. And <clears throat> we had a couple in a row that were pretty bad. And New York City was devastated. Parts of New Jersey were um, also really devastated. But our research labs, that's what, our, our, you know, we lost a lot. And during the storm itself, you know, nobody thinks about, well, what's going to happen when the storm actually hits the building? Well, you just stay home, right? Well, not if you have years and years of research sitting in your building and you know when that power goes off, your time is starting to tick, right? Your reagents are going to go bad. Your samples are going to go bad. You're going to maybe graduate in six months. You don't want your samples to be lost. And we were also on a farm, actually. So Rutgers Cook Campus sits with a farm. And my roommate was working with uh, horses. And so during the eye of the storm, we ran to campus carefully. <laughs> I don't recommend wow. doing this, <laughs> but we did go to campus and um, got the horses inside. We ran to our building. We had flashlights and friends that helped us. And we moved our samples to places that either our home freezer <laughs> or to freezers that we knew were on backup power, which were actually only a couple at the time. The generator that was installed never kicked on. So it was potentially we would have lost everything. And through our teamwork, we were a really good team. That is really brave. <laughs> we saved a lot of our samples. We protected our animals because the ceiling there would sometimes leak. And so we made sure that they were all safe and sound and okay to bear out the rest of the storm. And Rutgers didn't have power for a long time. So you couldn't, you were shut down then, basically. Yeah, we were shut down. Um, but it was mostly how do we care for animals with no power? Right. And so we ended up getting some backup power eventually. They were fine. They were in temperature regulated conditions for most of the time. But, you know, there's these are big challenges, challenges that people can face and you don't expect it. And I, and as we enter into more of this climate crisis, I think more and more um, this is going to happen, unfortunately, like what happened in Texas just a few years ago was devastating. And it reminded mm -hmm. me a lot of what we went through. And sometimes you can save your, your what you're working. Sometimes you can't. There had been there was another fridge on a different part of campus where a researcher who had been there for about 40 years lost everything. Um, you're it's just going. This is something that we need to think about and be able yeah. to prepare for. So <laughs> in constructing the my, yeah, the challenges that are truly out of your control, right? Like nature disasters, like or like right now a pandemic, you know, interrupting sure. research. Yeah, I, I think. Um, in a lot of ways, we were able to prep a lot more for the pandemic. We at least had some time to think about how do we shut down? How do we keep things mm -hmm. before we yeah. leave? Um, but yeah, both both are extremely challenging situations. And unfortunately, a lot of students didn't have the experiences that they should have had during their training. And I, I think that they might be hesitant to then apply it to the next step. Um, but we are well aware <laughs> of what is going on. And we take that into consideration when we look yeah. at um, opportunities as well. For sure. Well, and now to end on a lighter note, I did not warn you of this, so it's going to come as a surprise, but I like, well, you've heard a few episodes, so maybe you know that we like, like finishing with something light. So I'm going to give you a choice. Like, I guess you can talk about like your hobby. If you happen to have one, if you have no hobby, you can just tell us about like, do you have like a morning routine if you're like a type of routine person or like an evening routine, like something that something that humanizes you? Like who are yeah, who's Jessica? You know, like either your hobbies or like, you know, the things you do outside of lab. Of course. Yeah. So 
um, and I think this became really big during the pandemic, but we had been doing it for a long time, but we love visiting national parks. And I, I think being able to drive through, unfortunately, gas prices are really high right now, but driving through beautiful scenery and nature, nature that's been untouched by humans is just such a liberating and relaxing experience. Um, one of my favorite memories is going up to one of the high peaks in Colorado in, um, in Estes Park and just seeing all these elk just grazing naturally undisturbed and it's just a beautiful experience a very relaxing experience and i think physical activity when you're this you know you're working so hard maybe sitting behind a desk for so many hours can be amazing and um you know i recently took up peloton classes <laughs> so that's also my hobby but <laughs> i think just getting out there in nature is is amazing and now so do you do hikes or camp is that what you do or? um mostly just hiking I'm, I'm a little bit always nervous to camp in some of these national parks because it is very, <laughs> you're with nature. <laughs> I'm definitely not a camper at all. I like real beds. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it's just, it's just gorgeous experience. And, um, you know, Yellowstone with its natural wonders, it's just breathtaking. So that's, that's one of our favorite things to do. And living in Arizona now that we're on the West Coast, because as I was saying, I was on the East Coast for all my training. Um and where I grew up, but the West Coast is just opening up new wonders. So we like to take road trips and go hiking different places. It's, it's a lot of fun. That's awesome. Well, thank you for sharing your story with us and your challenges and what you do outside of lab, you know, so that's pretty inspiring. <laughs> Thanks for being with us. Of course. And I just want to give a shout out to um, my wife at the end of this. It is Pride Month and she has supported me throughout my entire training trajectory and is not easy. <laughs> so when you have a partner like that, keep them close. <laughs> Definitely. Spouses are a big, you know, partners or spouses are like part of our academic getting to where we are today, right? Like it's, it takes a village. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been really fun.